0: Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to lliw.net to register. William Willimon is a preacher and writer that I have appreciated over the years. I've learned much from his pen and his voice. He wrote a piece quite some years ago now for the Christian Century, a piece that I'd like to share with you this morning. It's a piece in which he takes his denomination to task. Now, because I don't belong to his denomination and because I want to be respectful to them, I've I've changed the name of the denomination to a fictional name. As far as I know, there's no denomination by this name. I'm calling it the United Believers. So with that in place, let me share with you Williman's words. He wrote, When you work around the church a while, it comes quite naturally, the laughter of cynical disbelief. In 1986, the United Believers General Conference on the last day of two weeks of meetings passed a resolution that said we were going to make nine million new United Believers by about 1994. This in a denomination that had been losing about 65,000 members every year since the early 70s. Nine million new United Believers. Well, I laughed. I thought, isn't this typical? We don't want to do the systemic changes in our church that would enable us to grow and reach out to new people. This is just window dressing, sloganeering, platitudes. We aren't serious about it. It's just more guilt to lay on pastors' backs. I went home, says Williman, and wrote an article entitled My Dog, The United Believer. In it, I argued that there was no way in heaven we were going to make 9 million new United Believers unless we started baptizing dogs. And I offered, as a fit recipient for the sacrament of baptism, my mixed-breed terrier sleeping in the garage. I said, this dog, as far as I know, has shown no interest in biblical studies. Therefore, he would make a perfect United Believer. I also said, this dog has the sexual ethics of some members of my former congregations. I laughed. But when the article came out in the Christian Century, not everybody laughed. The magazine lost about four subscriptions, and two United Believers bishops have not spoken to me since. But I was serious. The cynicism behind that move. We don't intend to really change the way we would have to change to be that kind of church. I laughed. He laughed, he says, laughed because he knew his denomination wasn't willing to make the kind of systemic changes required for the church, not just to survive, but to thrive. I read his piece and I laughed, and then I winced hard, because I thought that's not true just of Williman's denomination. It's probably true of many other denominations and churches around the country. And I wondered, is it true even of Adventism? The church to which I belong, the church which I love, had me wondering, has me wondering, after all, it doesn't take surveying the landscape too long to realize the church is facing serious challenges. The encroaching roads of culture, the encroaching attitudes of secularism come at us from every direction, especially through social media. Churches are struggling to survive, not even to thrive. That's out there somewhere. So how do we respond? What does the Christian church do? Well, we're trying together to make an attempt at an answer in this series. This series entitled simply Seven Ideas That Could Save the Church and One More That Could Change the World. This is our fourth week together. A quick review is in order. Idea number one, ask the right question. When looking at the reality that surrounds us in reference to the church, don't wring your hands and ask, what should the church do? Instead, ask the question, what is God doing in the world? And then align our church with God's mission in the world. Idea number one. Idea number two, it's the Holy Spirit that matters. I understand there are many innovative ideas, many exciting endeavors, many eager attempts to change the reality for the church, and they all have their place. But when it comes to the bottom line, it's the Holy Spirit that matters. Said maybe nowhere better than through the prophet Zechariah, quoting God, saying, Not by might, not by power, but by my Spirit. Idea number two. Idea number three, love has everything to do with it. When we're trying to understand and plan and decide on the foremost focus of the church, our primary emphasis, what should that be? Well, Jesus said the two great commandments are love to God and love to others. So if what we are doing as a church is not increasing love for God or increasing love for others, we need to stop doing it because love has everything to do with it. That's idea number three. And now today, idea number four. To get a glimpse of this idea, we're going to the New Testament to the first letter the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in ancient Corinth. 1 Corinthians 12. Now in this context, Paul is, is writing about the spiritual gifts that the Holy Spirit gives to the believers, the members of the Christian church, which he refers to as the body of Christ. Now he will refer to the church as the body of Christ a number of different times in his epistles. He does so here in a very specific way. I want to read... What Paul said to those believers at ancient Corinth, 1 Corinthians 12, start, starting with verse 12. Just as a body, wrote Paul, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one Spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the one Spirit to drink. Even so, the body is made up of one, not of one part, but of many. Now, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. Paul covers a lot of ground in that passage. There are many directions that we could go. Clearly, he's talking about the physical body. He's describing how it functions, how every part, no matter how small, how weak, or seemingly unimportant, is essential to the overall health and well-being of the body. But Paul's purpose is not to discuss the physical body. This isn't a medical school lecture. Paul's purpose is to make reference to the physical body and then to draw that into the conversation as an example of what the body of Christ is like. I think Eugene Peterson, in the paraphrase of the message, makes especially clear that transition. In a couple of the final verses that we read, let me reread them to you in the message. The way God designed our bodies is a model for understanding our lives together as a church. Every part dependent on every other part, the parts we mention and the parts we don't, the parts we see and the parts we don't. If one part hurts, every other part is involved in the hurt and in the healing. If one part flourishes, every other part enters into the exuberance. So we're all together, united in this body of Christ, just like the physical body is one unit. Now, the realities of that, I think, are stated very well by New Testament scholar David Pryor. What it means to belong to the body of Christ. Listen to how Pryor puts it. As the body of Christ operates in this way, so the individual members will find their real needs met. The need for security is met in the assurance that I belong to the body. The need for identity is met in recognizing and working at the fact that I have a distinct contribution to bring to the body. The need for a proper sense of responsibility is met by assuming concern for others in the body. I need you. I feel with you. I rejoice with you. So each individual grows as a person and as a Christian in direct relation to finding his place as a member of the body. It's an indivisible whole. While its many parts are different, they work for the efficiency and the health and the well-being of the entire body. As I mentioned, we could go in many different directions. That's a lengthy passage and has various things to say. I want to call our attention to just one verse in the passage. It's the last verse we read, 1 Corinthians 12, 27. Allow me to just reread it here so that we have it in mind. It says, Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. Now, you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. There are two pieces to that one verse. One thinks in the plural, one in the singular. One is written in the plural, one in the singular. The first part says, now you are the body of Christ. Now there's an emphasis there on the you. So much so that some versions translate this by saying, now all of you together are the body of Christ. Paul is speaking to the entire community of believers. All of you together, you form one unit, but each of you is involved in that, the body. But then he turns from saying, all of you are the body, to saying each one of you is an individual member of that body. The first part recognizes the privileges of belonging to the body because no part can survive if it is amputated from the body as a whole. Privilege of belonging. The other part recognizes the responsibilities of belonging. Each has to contribute. So first, think about the privileges of belonging. There are privileges. We read them in what David Pryor said just a moment ago. Privileges like identity and security and a proper sense of responsibility. There are other privileges as well. Privileges of knowing that there's a network of believers the which when I meet together with them, I can feel welcomed. I can feel a deep sense of belonging. Privilege is like knowing that that this body exceeds just my own local location. I think, for example, some time ago of traveling in a country in the Middle East, a country where people of Christian faith didn't feel very at home or very at ease. I remember thinking, traveling through this huge, congested city. One could feel in danger here. One could be uncertain of what the future could hold. One could feel very isolated. And then we arrived at a compound. The doors opened, we entered inside, went into the main building, and were enveloped by the body of Christ. There was a face or two I knew, I recognized, had known before. They welcomed us warmly. There were faces I had never seen, people I had never met, and yet they too drew us in, in the warm embrace of belonging to the same body. And I thought, you can go the world over You can cross chasms and canyons that divide people. And yet, even in that place, find yourself at home. Make no mistake about it. There are privileges at belonging to the body. But Paul then says, each of you individually, is a member of the body. Now, there's no question if we put this statement in its context, the 16 verses that preceded it that we just read, that Paul is reminding them that as individual believers, they have a responsibility to the others in the body. They have a responsibility to act in the best interest of of the body. They have a responsibility to use their spiritual gifts to build the body up. Strikes me, we have a much easier time enjoying the blessings and privileges than we do owning the responsibilities. And yet we have to understand if the church is to thrive, if that body is to thrive, the individual members must take that responsibility seriously. I don't know I don't know that I found it better stated in reading and studying about this passage than in the words of William Barclay. Listen to what Barclay writes. Notice carefully his emphasis. He says Paul goes on to look at things this way. You, he says, are the body of Christ. There's a tremendous thought here. Christ is no longer in this world, in the body. Therefore, if he wants a task done in the world, he has to find someone to do it. If he wants a child taught, he has to find a teacher who will teach that child. If he wants a sick person cured, he has to find a physician or surgeon to do his work. If he wants his story told, he has to find someone to tell it. Literally, We have to be the body of Christ, hands to do his work, feet to run upon his errands, a voice to speak for him. That's a thought worth pondering. In fact, let me take you back to one sentence. This is a sentence upon which we ought to linger. Christ is no longer in this world in the body. Therefore, if he wants a task done within the world, he has to find someone to do it. Allow that to seep into your thoughts and mind. Allow that thought to play around the edges of your consciousness when you think about the people to ask, who ask, why doesn't God do something about? Allow yourself to consider that Maybe God does want to do something about that. Maybe He's looking to you to do it. Somewhere, I'm sure, in the area around this church I am privileged to serve, in the Loma Linda community and its environs, there's an older gentleman, a widower, lost his wife a couple of years ago, has felt deep grief ever since. And then this pandemic hit. It used to be that he could go out, see people, maybe volunteer, interact, be in a space where at least he heard the voices and saw the sights of people together. Now he's been shut away, alone. His loneliness has deepened to the point of depression. He has prayed much. He has prayed often, saying, God, please help me. Please give me peace and healing in my soul. Please don't let me feel so deeply alone. Do you know what the truth is? Jesus wants to answer that prayer. Jesus wants to do something for him, wants to act. In his behalf. But what was it that Barclay said? Jesus is not physically present in the world. And for that reason he has a body. The body of Christ called the church. He may have been nudging you. To make a phone call. A regular phone call. To make regular visits. Even if you have to stand outside the window and talk. He may have been nudging you to write emails, to send a care package, and you've just been too busy to do it. Jesus wants to answer that prayer, but he needs a member of his body to do it. Could that be you? Somewhere here in the environs of my church, There's a young woman, a student. She has had it with Zoom classes. She is weary to the bones of being in her bedroom, at the dorm, or at her home alone, always on Zoom. She misses contact with others. She's praying for for somebody, a, a mentor, to enter into her life in some way, to give her a sense of balance, of direction, of purpose, to answer some key questions. In fact, even though you may not guess it looking at her from the outside, she's been praying, she's been pleading, God, send someone into my life. Do you know that Jesus wants to answer that prayer? His plan is to answer that prayer, to be with that young woman. What was it that Barclay said? He can't do it physically. He's not in the world. But he has a body, the church. Each member is to be at the disposal of the head to do what is in the best interest of the body's well-being. So he's been tugging on your heart, calling on you. You know that young woman. You could reach out. You could spend time, even if it were by phone or by FaceTime or Zoom. You could connect. Jesus may be waiting on you to answer her prayer. Some years ago, somebody around our church here, the Loma Linda University Church, made the comment to me, you know, to say Loma Linda University Church is quite a mouthful. I mean, some churches have brief, pithy names. Bethel, Oasis, something along those lines. Loma Linda University Church. It's a long name. And so we usually shorten it, don't we? We usually call ourselves by our acronym, L-L-U-C. But even that gets a bit cumbersome. And this person made the comment to me, you know what you ought to do? You ought to pronounce your acronym. What do you mean pronounce our acronym? Well, L-L-U-C. You could just say it, Lucy. You could say, we are Lucy. I liked it because I love Lucy. got me to thinking about that as I was studying this passage, thinking about the duty of the body. What if we personalize that a bit more, rather than just saying we are Lucy, to doing what Paul says here, recognizing that each member is responsible for his or her part in the work of the body as a whole. What if we were to say, I am Lucy? And then what if we were to add one more line to that? A line that, as far as I can find, has been attributed to a professor of English named William Johnson. J-O-H-N-S-E-N, an unusual spelling. But this line, as I said, as far as I can discover, has been attributed to him. The line is this. If it is to be, it is up to me. If it is to be, it is up to me. So what if we now draw all of those together, put them together in one statement, and find that that statement contains the fourth idea. That fourth idea would be stated this way. I am Lucy, and if it is to be, it is up to me. Just think of what saying and acting upon that would cause. Somebody says, I wish the church were more caring. And we say, I am Lucy. If it is to be, it is up to me. Somebody says, why isn't the church more prayerful, praying deeply for the Spirit of God? And we say, I am Lucy. If it is to be, it is up to me. What if somebody were to say, why isn't the church more concerned about the lost, more prayerful about going in search of the lost sheep on the hills around us? Why isn't church And we stopped and say, wait a minute, wait, 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 wait. I am Lucy. If it's to be, it's up to me. What if someone says, why isn't the church more open and welcoming to all, a place where every person can feel like he or she can belong, where all are equal, where the ground is all level at the foot of the cross, and we stop them and say, I'm Lucy. If it's to be, it's up to me. What if every time a statement is made about the church, our local expression here, the Loma Linda University Church, or even the larger Christian church, we immediately stepped into that space and said, I'm a member of the body. I have not only the blessings, but the responsibilities and the duties to act. If it's going to happen, it's up to me. I got to wondering, what do you suppose would happen if we took that kind of approach, if we possessed that kind of attitude? What if believers, not just here at Lucy, but believers around the country, around the world, took that posture, possessed that attitude, displayed that spirit, what do you suppose would happen? I think I have a pretty good idea because I've read this book. I've read of a time about 2,000 years ago when believers had that attitude. When they possessed that spirit. When they lived their lives in that way. Do you know what people around them said? They said, "These, these people, these Christ followers, they've turned the world upside down. There was no question there about whether the church would thrive or even merely survive. No question at all. Because it was actively making a difference in its world as each part of the body, each member of the body, played his or her role. They were saying, if it's to be, it's up to me. That's the fourth idea. I think there's an illustration of that idea in the life of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great German scholar, theologian, and ultimately martyr. Bonhoeffer had just graduated from his doctoral degree at 21 years old. 21 years old, graduated summa cum laude. In fact, in his dissertation, he wrote about the church, about this body of Christ we've been talking about in such terms that another great German scholar named Karl Barth commented that he has given us a fresh insight, a new insight, into the body of Christ and its meaning and work. Well, he had finished there in Berlin. He was about to move to go to Barcelona to serve as a pastor. His last meeting at his church there, he gathered with the children whom he had been shepherding. Children, mind you. And he spoke to them about the paralytic who received the forgiveness and the healing of Jesus. And then he says, they gathered in prayer and these children, children, prayed for him. He was still, he was a single man. He was still on the trajectory that would one day lead to his encounter with the Nazi scourge. He had many reasons to feel lonely. Here he is surrounded by young members of the body who are doing their part. Reflecting on that, Bonhoeffer would write these words. Where there is prayer, he wrote, there is the church. So he saw in that little gathering of children praying for him, the body of Christ, the church. But it's what he wrote next that captures me. Where there is prayer, he says, there is the church. And where the church is, there can never be loneliness. Bonhoeffer could say that because a group of young kids took seriously the fact that they were members of the body of Christ. I wonder what would happen here in our community of faith, separated physically right now, but bound together by common belief, common commitments, and a common Lord. I wonder what would happen during this time of pandemic if we took that seriously, if we owned the words of Paul, I wonder what would happen if each one of us said, I am Lucy. If it's to be, it's up to me.